for the sake of continuity, I'd like to offer a few reflections um, for Good Friday, sort of extending on what I talked about in my homily on Holy Thursday, where focused on a passage from Christ's high priestly prayer at the Last Supper, Father, they are your gift to me, to John 17. Um, but as I was sort of thinking about it and wondering what to talk about today, it hit me uh, from the Passion reading. On Good Friday, we read from the Passion of John, right at the beginning of Christ's encounter with Judas and the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ tells them, so if you are looking for me, let these men go, meaning his apostles. This was to fulfill what he, Jesus, said, I have not lost any of those you gave me. And so it's a direct reference to that passage from the chapter before in Christ's high priestly prayer, that these are the men that the Father gave as a gift, the apostles, to Jesus. And Jesus, in order to fulfill this passage, says, let these men go. And so we have this juxtaposition of Christ's reception of the gift of his friends, the apostles, but now he is called to and able to let them go. And what does this show to us? It shows to us that Jesus did not grasp the gift. He did not claim the gift of his apostles, his friends, for himself. It's that phrase which I've talked about before that comes from the founder of Communion Liberation, Monsignor Luigi Giussani, possession in detachment. And so yes, they, the, the apostles are the gift of the Father to Christ, and he possesses them, but he does not cling, he does not grasp, he does not hold on to them. In that chaste manner, in that virginal manner, he is able and willing to let them go. And so that's what I kind of want to focus a, a bit about today, this ability to let these men, let his friends go. Because it, it really does, it, it sets us up to see Christ now through the rest of the Passion. Uh, here in those chapters before, Jesus is there in the upper room. He is with his apostles, washing their feet, sharing that last supper. He's surrounded by this constellation of his friends. But from then on, what do we see? They abandon him. They leave him. And that Christ ultimately is left alone, uh, an isolated figure. And something else I noticed through the reading of the Passion, that unlike before, Christ is alone on the night before he goes in front of the San, uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, before he goes in front of Pilate. When Pilate says, behold the man, Christ is there alone. He's carrying the cross by himself. Even though there are the women, his mother and John at the foot of the cross, Christ ultimately dies on the cross by himself. He, so he, he's let the apostles go. Now, in a great sense, it's not just that he let them go, but he let them go to make their own choices. Uh, Peter to deny knowing him three times, Judas to betray him, which I really think is something we don't consider enough 
if Judas was truly Christ's friend, the pain that betrayal uh, left on his heart and on his mind, uh, probably much more in a certain sense than whatever physical pain to have such a close friend betray you. And then the others to all scatter in the wind, to run away. These are my friends, but yet none of them were there for me. And so he, he let them go, and he let them go to exercise their freedom. But of course, they did not stick with the Lord. They did not fulfill the duties of friendship. And then we see Christ ultimately on the cross, talking about this letting go, this not grasping or holding on to, with his arms extended on the cross, nailed to the wood, it's impossible for Jesus to grasp. It's impossible for him to hold on to. Uh, in fact, he has to let go of his mother. He has to let go of John and ultimately letting go of his life. No one takes my life, but I lay it down freely. And so Christ makes that action of letting go and offering his life as a sacrifice to the Father. And so so keeping you know this letting go of the apostles and the deeper letting go of the cross and the isolation we see of Jesus cut off from the people that he loved, and even seemingly cut off from the Father, even though he is not cut off from the Father, we can make the connection to the life of the priest, as I tried to do yesterday, where indeed uh, the priest, the parish priest, knows that parishioners, friends are given to him, and he is there to guide them and to love them and to keep them close, to, to intercede for them in the same way that Christ prayed for his apostles. He prayed for his friends, offering that prayer to the Father. But in the same way, the priest cannot grasp. Uh, he has to have that same chaste love. He needs to be willing to let go, let go in a very real sense that, you know, he will be moved from one parish to another assignment. And even though you will still keep in contact, they're, they're not your sheep anymore. And you've got to be able to let go. And also, reality is letting go to let people make their own choices. Sometimes they choose to reject you. They choose to reject the church. They choose to go in a different way. And while it hurts, just as it would have hurt the heart of Christ, it is part of that chaste love of living the possession in detachment of not clinging, of not grasping to those who have been given to us. And so as a result, then, we can also see that the priest does become an isolated figure, um, not necessarily lonely, but uh, alone. He's there. He's celibate. He's dedicated to the Lord. His hands are open, his arms outstretched, because ultimately, if we're going to act as priest in the person of Christ— is the person of Christ crucified, Paul, talking about how his life is in conformity to Christ and Christ crucified. But here is, I think, and, and so, of course, the priest, you know, we, we experience that, um, the, the death to self uh, and the, the, the loneliness that comes from following Christ. And it's a share, indeed, in his cross. Uh, there's a joy that's there, but I guess we're going to look at that a little bit later on in our reflections today. So the priest isolated, the priest alone, the priest who lets go of those who have been given to him, not grasping or clinging. But but it shows, though, that, that this is also, in a real sense, the image of the love of the Father. Because, of course, Christ is the, the image in his flesh, the icon of the Father. 
And he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Of course, the Son is not the Father, but he images the Father. He shows the Father to us. And the Christ who acts in the person, uh, the priest who acts in the person of Christ, is sort of the sacrament of the sacrament, the image of the image. And imaging the uh, Christ, he images the Father. And so he is that presence of the Father's love to the world. And so, bring this, this, this idea that the Father is entrusted with children, our earthly fatherhood. So here we're talking, again, certainly, yes, the priesthood, uh, the fatherhood of the priest, that images the priest of God the Father, but also, and I think, earthly fatherhood, that the Father is entrusted with children, but he cannot realize, he has to realize that those children do not belong to him. In fact, the children can stray, they can go in a different direction. He has to let them go to exercise their freedom. And this is the same experience of God the Father. We, through baptism, are his children, but he respects our freedom. Like The father um, of the prodigal son and the older son never forces the sons to come into the house, always respecting their freedom. And therefore, sometimes being alone in the house, when the younger son is out gallivanting and the older son is out working. Uh, the isolation of the father, uh, often whenever his children turn from him or reject his love. And again, I can go into a lot more meditation on this, but the thing that really came to mind that maybe sort of prompted me to really reflect on this for a Good Friday was something that, that came to me when I was revisiting Henry Nouwen's now very famous and sort of seminal book, Return of the Prodigal Son, where he talks about his meditations on Rembrandt's beautiful painting, looking at the younger son, the older son, but at the end, he reflects on the father. And basically, the whole book is aimed towards that, how we are all call, called as sons to grow, to be able to come to live out the father in a merciful, loving acceptance of others as our children. And a lot of what he talks about comes from his own experience in working a community of the mentally handicapped. And so he has these really beautiful reflections on his own experience of fatherhood, loving people who he cannot expect and should not expect anything back, back from. And so he, he says, and I'll offer a few quotes and some reflections on it. He says, quote, the loneliness of the father, the loneliness of God, the ultimate loneliness of compassion. The community does not need yet another younger or elder son, whether converted or not, but a father who lives with outstretched hands, always desiring to let them rest on the shoulders of his returning children, unquote. So, of course, I'm thinking of the outstretched arms of the father and the prodigal son welcoming the younger son, but also the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross, ready there to, to embrace us to draw all men to himself. Matthew 23, verse 37 really comes to mind. How many times I have yearned to gather your children. Of course, he's speaking about Jerusalem together. As a hen gathers her young under her wings, but you were unwilling. Christ wanted to gather all to himself, but yet the apostles, those given to him at that moment, were unwilling. And so here, the father and Christ imaging the Father becomes that, that home, a safe place, a place of blessing in receptivity. 
But there's a loneliness there of, of waiting to receive uh, and expecting nothing in return from the children. And so now and says in this very beautiful and striking passage that true fatherhood is sharing in the poverty of God's non-demanding love. There's a lot you could reflect on there. That poverty, that willingness to let go and not to grasp, of not putting demands on his children, the children, but respecting them, respecting their freedom, respecting their autonomy. And it demonstrates that when Christ does this and when the priest or even the earthly father is able to do this, great respect for the freedom of the children, even though he desires to be with them. And now one talks about that, the desire to be with the children and speak to them and hear how their life is going, to realize they often have to go their own way. And leaving the father uh, lonely, isolated, Christ on the cross, uh, letting go, lonely and isolated. Now, hearing that, you're like, Father, it sounds terribly depressing. Um, you know, this is not something that necessarily attracts others to the priesthood. And I guess, in a certain sense, if we're going to connect it to earthly fatherhood, it doesn't attract it to either. But the fact is, this isolation, this loneliness, is an essential part, an essential aspect of the cross. You just can't get around it. Christ died on the cross by himself. He had to give his life. But he gave it, his priest and his victim. And so, and looking at some of the thought of Ratzinger and Benedict, he noticed how in the Old Testament, the, the Levites, the Levites, the priests, their portion, they didn't get any of the land because their portion was God alone. And so, in the same way, as many gifts as we may have been given, people we've been entrusted with, the priest belongs to God alone. That is one portion. Not just for priests, as I've been saying, but for earthly fathers, earthly parents. So often I see them wanting to hold on and grasp their children, the helicopter parents, instead of giving them the freedom to make choices, even sometimes bad choices and sometimes choices that strike to their very heart. But also there's a deeper reality here that sort of cuts against this idea of loneliness, that even though the father lets go of the children that have been given to him, the children are still still held in the heart, in the mind. You think the father or the prodigal son could see the younger son coming from a far distance, was waiting, thought about the child every day, prayed for him. And so Christ, even though he may have been isolated and let us go, in his here unique beatific knowledge, was still able to see all of us, the apostles and all of his children throughout the, the, the years, and he was able to pray for us and loved us individually, even in his death. And so that there's there's a mystery here that amidst the isolation and amidst the, the letting go, there is still a joy present. And it's really hard to describe, and, and I've really thought over and over again how to best describe it, because now in, in this passage, I'll quote to you, sort of describes it a bit. He says, quote, the joy of fatherhood is vastly different from the pleasure of the wayward children. It is a joy beyond rejection and loneliness. Yes, even beyond affirmation and community. It is the joy of a fatherhood that takes its name from the heavenly father and partakes in his divine solitude, unquote. The solitude of the father, the solitude of Christ, the solitude of the priest or the earthly father as to let his children go, even though it pains his heart. How to, 
there's truth there that I think most fathers who've experienced this, the letting go of those given to him, uh, experience. But where's the joy? How can we say there's a joy there? And, and the best explanation actually comes from Pope Francis. Uh, for those who last year read his letter, Patris Corde, for the year of St. Joseph, Towards the end, when he talks about Joseph as the shadow of the father, he has an extensive passage on the chaste and non-possessive love of Joseph. It's sort of this perfect embodiment of what I've been trying to talk about here, of receiving the gift and then being able to let it go. I thought about quoting a passage or a sentence or even a paragraph, but it, it, there's so much truth here and so much beauty and since I'm actually not preaching, I'm just kind of giving a talk and I have no time limit, I'd like to really kind of read the whole entire thing, making comments as we go, and then trying after that to land the plane. He says, quote, being a father entails introducing children to life and reality, not holding them back, being overprotective or possessive, but rather making them capable of deciding for themselves, enjoying freedom and exploring new possibilities. So for that freedom that the father gives to his children. Perhaps for this reason, Joseph is traditionally called a most chaste father. The title is not simply a sign of affection, but the summation of an attitude that is the opposite of possessiveness. Chastity is freedom from possessiveness in every sphere of one's life. Only when love is chaste is it truly love. A possessive love ultimately becomes dangerous. It imprisons, constricts, and makes for misery. Uh, imagine the father in the parable of the prodigal son saying, I mean, you're not leaving this house uh, to the younger son or forcing the older son in the house. It's, it's not respecting freedom. It creates misery. God himself loved humanity with a chaste love. He left us free even to go astray and set ourselves against him. This is the risk that all fathers take. The logic of love is always the logic of freedom, and Joseph knew how to love with extraordinary freedom. He never made himself the center of things. He did not think of himself, but focused instead on the lives of Mary and Jesus. And so here in this next phrase is the real, the real paradox, uh, the real mystery. Joseph found happiness not in mere self-sacrifice, but in self-gift. And so as we'll see that in the receiving the gift is a gratitude and a joy, and letting go of the gift is a respecting of freedom and a joy we need to find, and we'll see how. But in the letting go is actually a gift of self. So somehow letting go of the children, letting go of what's been given, is actually a form and expression of self-gift. In him, we never see frustration, but only trust. His patient silence was the prelude to concrete expressions of trust. Our world today needs fathers. It has no use of tyrants who would domineer others as a means of compensating for their own needs. It rejects those who confuse authority with authoritarianism, service with servility, discussion with oppression, charity with a welfare mentality, power with destruction. Every true vocation is born of the gift of oneself which is the fruit of mature sacrifice. The priesthood and consecrated life likewise require this kind of maturity. Whether our vocation, whether our marriage, celibacy, or virginity, our gift of self 
will not come to fulfillment if it stops at sacrifice or the case instead of becoming a sign of the beauty and joy of love. The gift of self would risk being an expression of unhappiness, sadness, and frustration. And so here, it's that gift of self, which often entails sacrifice. For the person who is mature, there is an experience of joy. The joy of letting the child flourish. The joy of letting the child experience freedom. Of giving back the gift that was given to him. Um, so he continues, when fathers refuse to live the lives of their children for them, new and unexpected vistas open up. Every child is the bearer of a unique mystery that can only be brought to light with the help of a father who respects that child's freedom. A father who realizes that he is most a father and educator at the point when he becomes useless. Again, whenever you realize I'm useless, you would normally think it's a period of great sadness. But no, this is the perfect expression of self-gift by allowing the child to go, and to, to grow in his freedom. When he sees that his child has become independent and can walk the paths of life unaccompanied. And here for me is the decisive passage. When he becomes like Joseph, who always knew that his child was not his own, but had merely been entrusted to his care. Why is that decisive? Because... That's what Jesus learned from Joseph. Jesus, not only, I believe, learned to die from Joseph, but he saw Joseph let him go, let him go in a certain really radical way because Joseph had to give his life before he could watch um, Jesus perform his miracles and go out in his public mission. And so Jesus came to realize that the apostles in his own humanity were just given to him that he had formed them, he had given them everything, but they did not belong to him in that, that, that way. He was that non-possessiveness, that chaste love. And so he was able to let those entrusted to him go. In the end, this is what Jesus would have understood when he says, call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. The father had given Christ those apostles as a gift. And here he concludes, in every exercise of our fatherhood, we should always keep in mind that it has nothing to do with possession, but is rather a sign pointing to a greater fatherhood, the fatherhood of God the Father. In a way, we are all like Joseph, a shadow of the Heavenly Father, who makes his sun rise in the evil and on the good and sends rains in the just and the unjust, and the shadow that follows his son. And so it's, it's loving our children, even when they return the love or when they stray, or when they turn against us, when they deny or betray us, just as Christ experienced. It's remaining isolated, it may be remaining alone, but the arms are still open, ready to receive again, uh, open to whatever the Lord wants to give. And so in conclusion, uh, just as I sort of said, I think Joseph taught Jesus how to do that, the one who really taught Joseph how to do that, and Jesus would have been Jesus's mother, Joseph's bride, Mary, our mother, her receptivity of all as a gift, her fiat, be it done unto me according to thy word, and her receiving the son, receiving Jesus, and then as we saw, or we see on Good Friday at the foot of the cross, uh, the letting go of the son, that's the sacrifice of the church, the sacrifice of Mary, 
says, it doesn't belong to me, letting him go back to the father. But, but also in that letting go and opening the hands to let Christ go of no longer being able to grasp him, uh, being receptive of a new gift, uh, still having those hands open. And that, of course, is receiving John as her new son. And so this, this Marian letting go to receive a new, letting go of her son Jesus to receive John as a son is a glimpse of hope that we will see come to fruition on Easter Sunday. So as we meditate on this letting go, um, we also want to meditate and keep our minds as we wait with Mary in great hope for this return of a greater gift on Easter.